everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for episode eight of season five of the Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Inbound Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Bowen, an Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR, at UA. You all are going to wonder what is up with us because we are having back-to-back weeks of less comedy and entertainment at the beginning of the Revise and Resubmit podcast because we also have a great opportunity to talk with scholars at the same time that are doing things that are going on right now around us. Today's guest does research that reaches beyond a journal or conference presentation or even the airwaves of this podcast. And we're going to get to all of this. But I do want to start with a question for you, Annalisa. Have you ever worked in a place or done volunteer work in a place where you immediately thought, this is something I should study? Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, yes. I mean, maybe less volunteer work and more work work, but yes. And I think particularly as I have expanded my network of of colleagues and learned more about what others study along with my background, employment-wise and education-wise, I thought, hmm, not just could we study this, but we should be studying this. So I'll give a quick example. Okay. The question, like, how well do you know your colleagues? And I don't mean like, (laughs) oh, saw someone on the Investigation Discovery Network's newest crime documentary. That would be frightening. And I don't even mean like, well, when we go to happy hour, I know what she's going to order next um, or order first or order next. Um, But I mean, like their experiences and maybe what they might need to exist better. And I've often thought like we probably don't have enough services of various types of form of various types of services for employees. Um, And that's probably the case at like any organization. And I don't think that we ask folks what their experiences are, and that might lead to providing services. I'm also not sure that I would answer that survey question or that (laughs) uh, request, like, let me tell you everything about me. Um, That's a different conversation. Anyway, I had some of these thoughts after watching a TED Talk on ACEs. So that's adverse childhood experiences and the outcomes they can have later Mm -hmm. in life. And I watched that during part of an internship I had while getting a master's degree in social work. And I thought maybe we should be asking people about ACEs and then trying to provide services. That's a long study, long, long conversation to say, kind of. Sometimes I've thought about this. What about you, Kim? Ever worked or volunteered anywhere and you thought, oh, should we be doing research here? So I have done local um, volunteer work in the community around us here in Tuscaloosa. I've volunteered at the emergency shelter and the soup kitchen at local elementary schools. But I have to say, I never, or it never would have occurred to me that a community service project could also be something that I studied. I think in my mind, I thought of it as something other people should be studying, like especially when I was working um, with kids or volunteering at the soup kitchen, like why, why are these problems just ongoing and how come there aren't solutions? But I never mm. thought about myself as the one to do the research. So in my brain, I think I kept it all very separate. I think that makes sense. Um, and today's guest 
has made those connections between community work and research. And Dr. Peter Jensen is going to tell us about some of his work in the community and his research. And we're not going to give away spoilers yet. Okay, so maybe one spoiler just to say that working in the community is good. Research is good. Passions can lead you to research. Research can lead to change. Be invested in your community. That's the lesson. Is that too much of a spoiler? Nope, not at all. (laughs) I think that's just enough of a spoiler. So without (laughs) any further chattering from us, I would like to introduce our next guest, Dr. Peter Jensen, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies in the College of Communication and Information Sciences. Welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. We are thrilled to have you. Happy to be here. All right, Peter, welcome to the podcast. We're going to start out with a couple quick questions. So the first question is, where are you from? Uh, I'm from all over the Midwest, uh, Indiana, Kansas, Indiana, Nebraska, Wisconsin, Missouri for my PhD. So kind of all that with a, a bit of Colorado in before moving down here. Nice. And uh, what do you do now? Uh, I am an assistant professor of organizational communication in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Alabama. Roll Tide. So tied. what did the young Peter see himself doing? Did you say, did eight-year-old Peter say, I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to study I, organizational communication? Or was there a slightly different uh, yeah. path you were on? <laughs> yeah, professor uh, was a goal from like middle school, actually. Wow. Um, uh, history, history uh, was the the focus at that point. But like, yeah, no, I wanted I wanted to be a professor. I was uh, strangely obsessed with the scenes in Indiana Jones when he's in the classroom. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, no, that was that was the goal. And it was one of those things where you you decide you want a job and you have no clue uh, what it is. But I, I liked the idea. Uh, I liked the idea of teaching. But I knew I didn't want to teach uh, teenagers, so didn't really want to do middle school or high school or anything like that. So we'll you were the, the actually like you were literally the first person <laughs> who has said like I yes yes it is true I did want to be a professor. Mm-hmm. Okay, Peter. So the next question is: Did you take a like straight path from middle school to the to the PhD? Uh, no. So. Um, in middle school, I was really interested in civil war history. In high school, I started becoming more interested in European history, uh, Renaissance, medieval kind of, and then with this, uh, once I was in college, I was a history major, uh, and became really interested in, um, both this rebirth of rhetoric that we had during the Renaissance era and the humanist tradition, uh, and then also propaganda. So particularly mm-hmm. propaganda, uh, leading up to and during World War II in Germany. Uh, and so those two things uh, are how I ended up in communication studies. Uh, Ripon College, where I did my undergrad, is a very good but small communication program. Uh, and uh, I started thinking about rhetoric uh, as a thing that I was really interested in, you know, this idea of persuasion and how do we, uh, you know, get people uh, to consent to things that are often not in their best interest. And so I took a couple of rhetoric courses there and, and really loved that. Uh, added communication as a minor. Uh, and then uh, I had kind of figured out by the end of my undergrad that I didn't want to do uh, history because I didn't want to spend 
my life arguing about things that people have been arguing about for <laughs> hundreds of years. Mm. This is quite a linear path, and I absolutely love it. Um, so you kind of mentioned rhetoric and propaganda and mm-hmm. history. Can you give us an elevator pitch of the research that you do? Yeah, I mean, and so the research that I do has very little to do with any of those things that I mentioned, <laughs> uh, but is still very tied in in a lot of ways. So uh, I'm interested in why do we organize the way that we do? And as part of that, uh, unpacking sort of the underlying assumptions, the epistemic and sort of paradigmatic things we think about the world, and how are those reflected in the choices we make uh, within organizations? Um, there's sort of a, a, a divide in organizational communication, and I'm on the side where I'd say I don't really study organizations, I study organizing. So I'm really interested in the process and sort of the communicative aspect of that process where if I believe, so a lot of my work is with homelessness, if I believe uh, that homeless people are homeless because they're lazy and I'm in a a position of authority or I'm in a position where I'm writing policy, I'm going to create policies that include sort of uh, things that uh, allude to that and the belief that the way we fix homelessness is by uh, making sure people are applying for jobs or making sure they're going out to work. And then when those policies trickle down into the shelters, and the people who are enforcing those policies are doing so in their interactions with the homeless folks with whom they're working. Uh, and so we start to take for granted that the policies are the way they are, but there's something very political about that. And so those things that's where I often talk about organizations as rhetorical accomplishments. And so there's all those issues of powers and consent and uh, sort of how do we view the world uh, manifest in all the, organ- the organizing processes that we engage in. Okay, so I I often, um, when I have taken classes, I have seen policy classes, and I've been like, wah, wah, nobody cares about policy. It's so boring. <laughs> but it's not. You just have to find, like, the, the what you're interested in. So mm-hmm. how – I've got lots of thoughts here. How do you how – do you, <laughs> Me too. Um, how did you find kind of this this homelessness um, area of research, thinking about that from an organizational standpoint, thinking about that with respect to organizing and the policy? Where where did you what was the path to land you in this area? Um, a lot of falling backwards into things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so after undergrad, I took. Uh, three years off before I started my master's program. For two of those years, I was working at Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a treatment center for at-risk youth. A lot of kids are there as an alternative to juvenile detention. And then when I moved to Colorado before I started my master's at University of Colorado Boulder, uh, I ended up taking a job as a case manager at what I later learned after getting the job was a for-profit halfway house for adult male convicted felons. And one of the things that that really helped me see was a structural issue in relation to stigma about how you have kids that are in the system who become adults that are in the system. Uh, There were a lot of guys on my caseload who had been incarcerated effectively since before they were even teenagers. Mm. And so I started looking at a lot of these things for these structural components to it. And also, especially when I was at the halfway house, the way that having a for-profit incentive uh, (laughs) shifted uh, the way that we do what is... you know, the prison system is a social service. Uh, it's not a very good one, and particularly the way we do it here is not very good. But adding a 
profit incentive to that was huge. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I started seeing in that job was the role of stigma and how guys who were trying to go out and get jobs, and this was at the height of the housing crisis. I was doing this in 2009 and 2010. Um, they're trying to go out and get jobs and the role that the stigma of having a felony on their record mm -hmm. impacted their ability to try to integrate back into society, which they were trying to do. And so I started thinking sort of at the tail end of my master's and then certainly into my PhD program, because I didn't start studying organizational communication really until I started my PhD, um, about how stigma impacts organizing and wanting to do that during a qualitative research methods class uh, while I was at University of Missouri. Uh, I ended up doing work on a Catholic worker house, um, which I call a CC house in a few publications. And that was really where everything clicked for me in terms of starting to look at this issue of homelessness, but also looking at organizations that were trying to exist separate from the policies. So mm. these are completely independent. They're, most of them aren't even 501c3s, right? So it's not an organization that reports to the government in any way, shape, or form beyond paying like property taxes or anything like that. Uh, and so looking at sort of the freedom that comes to for these organizations when they don't have the kind of oversight that is forced on by housing and urban development, which handles most of the policies around homelessness in the United States. Mm. Okay, I have about 19 follow-up questions, so I'm going to try to quickly prioritize them. Um, okay, so you had said that what you're looking at is, or one of your questions is, how does stigma relate to organizing? And what I'm wondering, mm -hmm. kind of looking at this issue of stigma, you had said, you know, when um, when they get out of prison and they're on the job market, they've, they've got all of the stigma associated with having been convicted of a felony. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's something that affects the individual, but then you've got this organizational piece to it, people who are evaluating or looking at job applic applications from these individuals who are attaching stigma to who they are in their past. So what has your research told you? What have you learned from your studies about how to maybe break this cycle? Because it, it seems very cyclical and not, I mean, does it start with the individual not seeing himself or herself in that way? Or does it start with the organization and kind of training them to think about individuals differently? That's a very long question. And that's only one. Yeah. Um, so uh, a quick thing, when we're talking about organizations versus individuals, it's a really tricky issue uh, in terms of being able to understand where a person ends as like an individual and where they begin as an organizational, as a part of an organization. Um, this is one of the interesting questions we think about like organizational rhetoric. You know, when President Bell speaks, is he speaking as an individual or is he speaking yeah. as the organization? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer is really kind of both of these things. Uh, to your question about like one of the, the things that I wanted to do with my uh, master's thesis that ended up running into IRB issues uh, was <laughs> actually- um, Shocking doing uh, a qualitative project where I was interviewing and potentially shadowing uh, men who were on intensive supervision programs. So mm -hmm. those are the guys who are on ankle monitor systems mm -hmm. uh, and uh, understanding how they began to create and negotiate an identity as a freed person when they're actually in some ways under even more intense scrutiny than they were when they were inside. Mm, wow. And so, like, how do you start thinking of yourself as a as a freed person or as a person who's out of the prison system uh, under those circumstances? And so I do think, you know, self uh, 
you know, self-perception plays, plays a part. But the other part of this, and this is something that I picked up from my work with the Catholic worker houses, which identify as sort of Christian pacifist anarchists uh, who are running a lot of these, um, they call them houses of hospitality. Uh, we would sometimes call them shelters, and a lot of them don't like that term for a number of reasons. Mm. But anyways, uh, a lot of it is based on this idea of personalism, where we're going to try to treat each person as an individual. And so engaging with them as an individual, engaging with them and understanding that individuals have different needs mm. and wants and desires, and also different things that they can provide. There's a sort of a mantra within a lot of anarchism, which is uh, each according to their ability and their need. Mm. You know, providing what you can and taking what you need. And if everybody does that, we'll be okay. Um, and so the organization, I think the biggest thing is how do we engage with people as individuals as opposed to looking at something like a felony, which becomes uh, what's sometimes referred to as a master status signifier, it becomes the only thing that matters for that person. And so how do we get past that? And how do we engage with the, uh, with people as people as opposed to just one facet of what's happened in their past? Okay, so I I think that maybe a uh, <laughs> I'm trying trying to think of how how we also see this in higher education, but that's mm -hmm. another topic. <laughs> um, so one one of the questions that I have, or just observations, is that you you got out of the ivory tower, um, or maybe prior to coming back into the ivory tower, and you saw some things and you experienced things. You thought, oh, hmm. I could study this. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that, you know, I struggle with sometimes teaching like research methods. I'm like, oh, okay, here's another PowerPoint. Let's talk about these concepts. <laughs> but getting out and noticing um, the world and mm -hmm. then thinking with respect to like questions, like how does this happen? Why does this happen? What can we learn is, is really important. But here's the question. Um, so you've talked about rhetoric. You've talked about qualitative methods. Can you tell us a little bit more about what methods you prefer, what methods you use um, when you're doing your research? Yeah, so uh, I identify primarily as an ethnographer. Um, that is where I won't say I'm the most comfortable because I tend to be fairly introverted. And so putting me into a strange social situation is actually quite stressful. <laughs> um, but with the things that I'm interested in, uh, I, I think there's a need to see communication in practice. Mm. And ethnography is the way that you see communication in practice as opposed to any other method. You're getting secondhand reports or even when you're talking about um, like experimental design where people are being observed. It's not the same thing as actually seeing how people organize uh, as it's happening. And there have been certainly been times where I've done interviews and people say things are one way and then they're completely differently in terms of what they actually do on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the problems with ethnography is it's the least efficient method of data collection on the planet. Um, <laughs> you know, um, you can get 30 hours of interviews and have almost as much data as I did doing 234 hours of observation plus 15 wow. interviews, wow. Uh, which oh is goodness. what I did for my dissertation project. And so it's not a, a fast way, but there is a certain kind of data that you can only get that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 
I'm going to follow up to that last statement that you just made. Um, because I think for those who are listening, what we're trying to do is expose them to different types of research broadly in the area of communication and how it really does get at what's the question you're asking and then what's the most appropriate methodological way to study that. So you've kind of um, told us about that a little bit. And I feel like talking about ethnography as a fit for what you do, it sounds perfectly logical, but tell us even more about like how you how you get started. So you've had this sort of research program going and you know what you want to do. Like how do you do you reach out to people and contact them? Like what what are all of these steps? Can you break that down even more for our listeners? Uh, absolutely. Um, so a lot of it, what the steps look like is going to vary from organization to organization. So for example, when I did my dissertation five years ago, uh, now, um, the process looked a lot like I was interested in alternative organizing. I was interested in working with another Catholic worker house, uh, other than the one I had worked with before. And so I had to start with, okay, what Catholic worker houses are there that are available within a certain driving range of where I was in Columbia, Missouri. And so I just reached out to all the different ones. And at that point I had the advantage of having worked with the one that was in Columbia. And so I was able to name drop a little bit uh, with the, the folks I had worked with before and say, you know, they'll vouch for me as, as, a, as a good actor or somebody you can be uh, somewhat trusted. <laughs> and once I had one of those houses that was willing to work with me, uh, Karen House, uh, Judy's Place, um, was the one I ended up working with. I started looking around for another shelter in the same area as close as possible that served the same population. And so Judy's Place was a uh, shelter for women and their families. Um, and so I wanted another women's shelter in the same area. And so I found Midwest Safe Family, which was about 20 miles away, and actually had, in some cases, women who had stayed at both of these organizations. Mm. Now, when I was contacting Judy's place, it was like, okay, I, I had gotten information about who I should call, make, reach out to and get their number, talk to them for a little bit. They had a meeting as a community about whether or not to have me in. They said, okay, well, we want to meet you before we make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so I went out and I worked a couple of shifts at Judy's place. Um, to sort of show them who I am and get them a chance to know me, get them, give them a chance to ask questions about the project. And one thing to say, when I'm in a site, one of the things I like to try to do is to act as a volunteer mm. or a very active participant in the organization. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I got from my very first qualitative methods class with Larry Fry at University of Colorado Boulder, uh, he said, one of the things that we try to do as researchers, the goal is often that we should do no harm through our research, right? Right. He says, well, I think that that's a very low bar. Why can't we try to do some good through our research and make that the goal? And so one of the things I think about is, you know, I love when I'm writing, I love the theory, right? I love, I love the questions or the philosophical questions, but you can also do some good, not just in terms of the write-up, but how do you act as a person in the scene? And so I try to volunteer. I try mm -hmm. to give back to the sites and make that a part of the design of the research. And so when I was at the site, you know, I was cooking dinner, I was helping clean up, I was checking people in, I was answering the phone. And so after a couple of shifts, they decided that I was allowed to come in there and do my observations. With Midwest Safe Family, 
I had to go through this whole bureaucratic chain. Nobody knew who I was supposed to talk to initially. I had to write out a research proposal that was that was sent in and was presented at their regional board meeting, and they gave me permission uh, at that level, uh, and then never told the uh, head of the shelter that I was coming in until the first day I was there. Um, and so very much you know typical bureaucracies where not all the communication is going through or decisions that are being made at a higher level impacting the lower level. And so it's going to, depending on the structure of the organization and who you're talking to and how it's laid out, uh, your gatekeeper and who your gatekeepers are and how your gatekeepers are going to interact is can vary quite a bit. But a lot of it's just, yeah, calling is the first step. Okay, so I like that you, you talked about um, doing no harm in, in research. And, and you mentioned you know, uh, getting started in doing volunteering. What happens after the research is mm-hmm. quote unquote done? Um, do you share it with uh, the folks that you've worked with? What does that look like? Uh, yeah, so uh, I share um, the, I always share the full text of the document Throughout the process of research, I do um, not member checking, but member reflections. Mm. So I'll, and the idea is like member checking is often presented as here's the final version of the write up. Tell me whether you agree with me or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of issues that we run into that, particularly when we're doing critical work that may be uh, not a fan of the way that things are being done. And so that's opening up some some weird things. Member reflections, though, is a more iterative process where throughout it's just like, I'm seeing this. Does this resonate with you? What does this idea sound like? And so it's this idea of it's a more active conversation throughout the research process. Mm. But yeah, so I I do provide write-ups at Midwest Safe Family. One of the things that I had talked about in my proposal was actually doing a presentation uh, Mm. for the folks who were working at the shelter. at the India, that never ended up happening. They had some turnover in upper level administration. And uh, then by the time they got back to me, I was down here and just like, well, you know, I can do it these dates. And it just never really worked because it was usually going to be around a holiday. Um, but beyond that, also, I maintain in a lot of cases, like active and ongoing relationships with the folks I meet through my field work. Um, a few years ago, when NCA was in Baltimore, uh, I met up with one of the workers who was at the house in Columbia, uh, and you know he was doing a residency at John, uh, a fellowship at Johns Hopkins, um, and so uh, the year before I'd gone up to the wedding for another participant. You know I'm friends with someone wow. on Facebook, and we chat, and uh, even after I'd finished doing field work, I continued volunteering at one of those houses uh, for another year or so. Mm. Okay, so Peter, I have to ask that based on what you've just described in your process of collecting data and and the volunteer work that you do, I think anytime you're kind of in the field working on research, it's difficult to separate yourself from what you're doing or, you know, to not become emotionally invested. So with the type of work you do, is that a critical piece of it? Do you have to try to kind of separate out how you're feeling about things or is it okay in this process? I would say it's more okay. It's one of those things where you have to check yourself, but it's always like, 
am I really seeing what I'm seeing? Am I really hearing what I'm hearing? You know, and that's something we have to do in our everyday lives, right? It's not something that's special for in research, mm-hmm. right? When we're navigating relationships or environment around us, we're always doing that. I don't put particularly much of a barrier between myself as a person and myself as a researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that comes with a lot of, uh, sometimes there is a lot of emotional labor. That's yeah. a big part of our emotional work. That's a big part of it. It can be really difficult and trying um, and sort of wearing down sometimes existing in these spaces for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I was doing my my field work, I was actually staying at one of the shelters because it was, you know, a couple hours drive to get out there. And so I would spend the night there. You know, I'd do a, a shift from five to 11 or six to 11 uh, lock up the house, go upstairs, write up the field notes from the day before, go to bed, wake up, have breakfast there uh, with the volunteers and the women and the guests who were staying there and then go off to the other shelter. And so, you know, uh, that's just, that was my life at that time. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I tell my stu- like qualitative method students is looking at some of these things and looking at these limitations where we often we, we overemphasize the fact of, of our biases sometimes. And we think of those as just limitations, but also thinking about what advantages does that give you? Yeah. When you lean into those things, how does that actually help and enrich your study? Mm. You know, if you're feeling those emotions as a human in those situations, that's data too. Mm. And so we often talk about those, these things as weaknesses and they, they certainly have their drawbacks. But instead of focusing so much on the drawbacks, how do we focus on the positives, the good outcomes that we get from having uh, the, these feelings and being in those spaces in these particular ways? I love that. That's great. I do too. And um, I <laughs> I feel like um, this is this would be just, we'll, we'll have to continue talking, but um, <laughs> we are at the point where we are going to shift into um, some quick questions, um, get your recommendations on some things. Um, and so let's start off with what's your favorite TV show? What are you watching right now? Um, I'm rewatching Ted Lasso right now uh, because Ooh. I'm working on my tenure case and I need something that makes me happy. Oh, <laughs> excellent choice. Um, so what book is on your nightstand and it does not have to be academic at all? Um, so I mostly do Audible. Uh, for pleasure reading. And right now it is uh, Shadow of the Lightning, which is just sort of a, a fantasy book. And so that tends to be a lot of what I listen to. All right. What's a movie we need to see right now? Nope. Oh, oh, I love these recommendations. Um, okay. It was fantastic. <laughs> I was like, are you refusing to? I know. <laughs> I had a, a moment where I was like, wait, I think I've heard that. Um, okay, last fun question. If your life were to be a reality show, what would that reality show be? Mm. That's a weird question. I don't know. Um. <laughs> this is the perfect opportunity to just say, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a room without a view. Oh, no. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Uh, Peter, it has been so much fun talking with you today. Thank you so much for Thank you. sharing with our listeners more about who you are and what you do. This has been just fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.